we welcome all of you who are joining us online, as well as those of you here at uh, Central Campus, along with all of those of you joining together in worship at one of our other campuses in Airdrie, in Bearspaw, in Bridgeland, and in South Calgary. Recently, someone rang our doorbell, and when I opened it, there was a person with a big smile and a brochure in hand ready to give me a sales pitch on a certain product. Even though she was very pleasant, I didn't purchase it because I concluded we really didn't need it, but also because the benefit of having the product wasn't worth the price. If you think about it, we in the Western world are very pragmatic by nature. Most of our decisions are determined on the basis of the answer to two questions. What will it benefit me and what will it cost me? This pragmatism pervades our culture, and my observation is it also plays a major role when people are checking out uh, the Christian faith and the church. Over the years, I've had people ask me, why would I want to become a Christian? In other words, how will I benefit if I become a Christian? Unfortunately, some Christians fall into the same way of thinking by trying to sell Christianity like they would a beach vacation, suggesting, well, if you become a Christian, you'll be blissfully happy, wealthy, and healthy, just soaking up the rays of God's blessings. And often on this basis, people say, okay, sign me up. I'm going to give Christianity a shot. And they meet other members of God's family. They feel loved and accepted. And they get pretty excited about their newly found Christian faith. But then troubles come. They lose their job or their investments take a major hit. The person that they were growing close to in a dating relationship says it's over or they receive a life-changing medical diagnosis. And they think, wait a minute. When I signed up to be a Christian, I was told this wasn't gonna happen. I was told the sun was always going to shine, that there'd be no storms. God, I mean, if you love me, then why is this happening to me? And far too often in these situations, people will walk away from Christ and the church because they signed up to follow the God that they wanted, the God who would give them what they wanted, rather than follow the God who is. And when God didn't come through with the goods, they were done with him and the church. Now in our study in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says that there are benefits, in fact, life-changing benefits, and, or blessings that come when you are justified by faith by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. We looked at the first three last time. First of all, we have peace with God. We now belong to his family. The fear whether I'm right with God, the worry whether I've done enough to earn God's favor, all that's over. We have peace with God and the peace of God. Secondly, we have access to God. In Romans 5, verse 1, we read this. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, 
we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. When we put our trust in Christ, we have direct access to God, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ did for us on the cross. And so now, we are worthy to approach him. We can talk to God about anything at any time or at any place. We don't have to go through a priest because Jesus is our high priest. And so we have peace with God, we have access to God, and thirdly, we have the hope of being with God in heaven one day. Verse 2 says, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. One day we're going to be reunited with all those who have died in the Lord before us, and we're going to spend forever with them and also with the Lord in heaven. A place, by the way, that will be far more spectacular, majestic, and awe-inspiring than anything this world can offer us. Which brings us to verse 3, where Paul gives a fourth benefit or blessing of being justified through faith in Jesus Christ. Would you please stand with me, if you're able, and join me in reading this passage. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your word, its instruction for life. And Lord, as we stop now to receive from you, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to focus our minds, remove distractions, that you would soften our hearts to receive what you have for us. And then, Lord, you would give us the courage to respond to what you're asking us to do or to be. For we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, when we read that scripture passage together a moment ago, I'm sure some of you thought, say what, Paul? How can suffering possibly be a blessing? I mean, the first three benefits make total sense and have great appeal for being a Christ follower. But suffering? I mean, get real, Paul. That has no appeal at all. How can we glory? How can we rejoice in suffering? Well, that's what we're going to be focusing on in the time remaining. But before we do, it is vital we understand why there is suffering. Some time ago, George Barna, the public opinion pollster, conducted a national survey in which he asked this question. If you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? And the top response given in that survey was this. Why is there pain and suffering in the world? It's a question that all of us have struggled with because we've all suffered one way or another. Now, I've dealt with this question at length in previous messages and especially in the Why Believe series, but here's a quick summary. 
In the Bible, we see at least four reasons for suffering. One reason is because our world is broken. This world, with all of its pain and sorrow, is not the way God intended it to be in the beginning. You see, when God created our first parents, Adam and Eve, he made them to live forever. The earth was a paradise, and death was not a part of life. Now, God could have made Adam and Eve robot-like, in which they simply did what he programmed them to do. But thankfully, God didn't want robots. He wanted lovers, people who loved him back freely from the heart. And so he invested in us a thing called freedom, the freedom to make choices, good choices and bad choices. He even gave us the freedom to follow him or to reject him. And in Genesis 2:16, he set down clear parameters and guidelines for Adam and Eve to follow for their benefit. And he warned them of the consequences of abusing their freedom. Unfortunately, they chose to rebel against God, go their own way rather than God's way, and the rest is history. We now live in a broken world, a world that is increasingly filled with evil and suffering and division, death, and even natural disasters. But make no mistake, this was never God's original plan for his creation. So that's the first reason there's hardship and suffering. We live in a broken world. A second reason is, is because of the attacks and the lies of our enemy Satan. The best example in scripture of Satan's sinister activity is his attack on Job. Satan attacked Job's possession, his family, and even his health. In John 10.10, 10, Jesus revealed what Satan's agenda is. He said, the thief, referring to Satan, comes only to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan's agenda is to kill our hope, to steal our joy, and to destroy our very lives. Thirdly, suffering can be caused by other people. Because we are naturally sinful and self-centered, we have the capacity to not only make bad choices, but evil choices in life. Cain made a choice to kill his brother Abel in Genesis 4. Laban swindled his nephew Jacob because of greed in Genesis 29. And Joseph's brothers said to him, sent him into slavery because of jealousy in Genesis 37. A lot of hurt that we suffer in life is the result of the direct or the indirect acts of selfishness, prejudice, jealousy, anger, lust, and the greed of others. A fourth reason there's suffering in the world is because we bring it on ourselves. Many of the storms in my life can be traced back to the guy who looks at me in the mirror every morning. Now, I would much rather blame God. <clears throat> blame God for the storms. I'd much rather blame you for the storms I'm facing. And I often blame those closest to me for them. But the plain truth is, I cause a number of storms in my life and so do you in your life. An investor, for example, gets greedy and, and, and chooses to go for the big kill in the stock market. 
but the economy catches him going the wrong way, and instead of making it big, he loses big, and then he says angrily, how could you, God? A person gets drunk, staggers to his car, races home, and in the process, hits a child and kills her, and at the funeral, people ask, oh, God, how could you let that happen? And once again, God gets the rap for the sins, selfishness, and just poor decisions of man. We demand our freedom to do as we please. But when someone uses that freedom for selfish or evil purposes that hurt us or someone else that we love, we want God to change all the rules. We want him now to step in and stop the person from exercising their free will. But folks, we can't have it both ways. We can't demand the freedom to choose and at the same time blame God for the suffering and the hurt that comes as a result of the self-centered and selfish decisions that people make. So those are the four major reasons, or at least four of the major reasons, why there is suffering in the world that we see in the scriptures. Which brings us back to Romans chapter 5 and the question, how can we possibly rejoice in suffering and hardship? Well, Paul spells out two major reasons here in our passage. First of all, because we know God can use suffering and hardships to accomplish good in our lives. Now, let me be perfectly clear. God hates pain, suffering, and the troubles of this life, and so should we. As I said a moment ago, this world is not the way he intended it to be in the beginning. Rejoicing in our suffering doesn't mean we enjoy the suffering. Notice it says we're to rejoice in suffering. It does not say we're to rejoice for our suffering. That is masochism. Masochists, in a twisted kind of way, they find pleasure in pain. They love to torture themselves and, and just to be miserable. That is not what's being taught here. Look at verse 3 again. Paul writes, we can glory in our sufferings because we know something. What we know is that God will use hardship to accomplish good. Romans 8.28 says, and we know that in all things, good and bad, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Now, this verse does not say that everything that happens to us is good. No, it acknowledges that troubles and bad things will come our way, but assures us that God will use them to accomplish good in our lives and or in the lives of others. Neither does this verse promise that God will bring good out of bad for everyone. No, it says this promise applies to those who love him, and who are following him. If you do not believe in God, or if you just flat out reject God, then there is no purpose for your suffering. And it's illogical, by the way, to blame the God you don't believe in for your suffering. According to evolutionary atheism, you are here by chance. And if you are suffering, it's because the odds didn't fall in your favor and you are simply one of the unlucky ones. 
But if you believe in God, the God of the Bible, that changes everything. Based on Romans 8, 28, we know that our God is in control and that he's a good God, which means that whatever storm we find ourselves in, we can know with confidence that God has a loving and a good purpose for it. And even if it makes absolutely no sense right now, one day when we see our lives from God's perspective, we will understand fully. And in that moment, we will praise him for his goodness and his love for us. Now, there are many ways that God can use hardships to accomplish good. For example, he can use hardship and suffering to get our attention and to draw us closer to himself. C.S. Lewis has said, God whispers to us in our pleasure, but he shouts to us in our pain. 2 Corinthians 4.16 tells us that God can use hardships to get our eyes off the temporary things of life and to focus more clearly on the eternal things of life, the things that really matter, to examine our values and our priorities in light of eternity and what we're going to give our life to. 2 Corinthians 1.3 teaches that God can use troubles to grow our compassion for others. It reads, God comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Perhaps you've noticed, as I have, that in many cases, the person who is greatly used by God is the person who somewhere along the way has first been greatly bruised. You show me a person who is humble and sincere, sensitive and compassionate toward people, and I'll show you a person who somewhere along life's road has been battered by storms. Storms have an equalizing effect on humanity. Storms have a way of making the ground level. They place everyone in the same boat, as it were, regardless of how rich or how successful or how beautiful or how educated or how popular they may be. Storms have a way of making invincible people vulnerable, independent people dependent, insensitive people sensitive, arrogant people humble, and hard people, crusty people, tender. God can use hardships to accomplish all kinds of good in the lives of those who love him and trust him. And here in Romans 5, beginning in verse 3, Paul spells out a few additional ways God uses suffering to accomplish good in us. He writes, first of all, suffering produces perseverance. The Greek word for perseverance literally means the ability to handle pressure. Usually, we want to get out of pressure. We panic. We want to bail. Perseverance is the ability to stay calm under pressure. God uses suffering to teach us how to handle pressure, how to hang in there, to never give up, to keep on keeping on, 
to be consistent and focused and single-minded on what is most important. And most of all, to keep trusting God no matter what. In 2 Corinthians 1.8, Paul describes how God did this in his own life. This is what we read there. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardship we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts, we felt the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Even Paul got discouraged and depressed. I hope that encourages you, or at least some of you. He was ready to give up on life itself. And yet through this time of intense hardship, Paul grew in his faith. He learned to stop trusting in his own ability and rather to trust in God's supernatural ability. You know, church, God prizes the human spirit that will not give up. But please note this, he prizes those who will not give up on him. Those who will not give up seeking his face, those who will not give up praying and trusting him to do what only he can do. And so suffering produces perseverance. Secondly, perseverance produces character. The Greek word for character carries with it the idea of being put to the test, of being approved. It's this idea um, of being shown to be reliable and trustworthy in the way that tires or suitcases are put through all kinds of stress tests and then approved as reliable. Well, in the same way, as you become more reliable, people begin to trust you more and start counting on you more. The word character is used to refer to metal that has been purified by heat and fire. When you heat up metal, like gold or silver, for example, the impurities rise to the top. Someone once asked a goldsmith, how do you know when the gold is pure? He responded by saying, when I can see my reflection in it. That is God's purpose for your life and my life, to bring us to the place where the character and the life of Jesus is reflected in us and through us. But for that to happen requires us to come to a place of humility and complete surrender to Christ. James 4, 6 says that God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Psalm 51 says, the Lord delights in a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Jesus wants to live his character through us, but it won't happen until we surrender to his control and let him have his way in us and through us in the same way that a horse needs to be broken and submit to its master. And so at times, God will allow hardships to come our way 
to bring us to a place of humility and brokenness. And as we surrender, increasingly our lives will begin to reflect the character and the life of Jesus. Suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character, writes Paul, produces hope. Now you would think that troubles would destroy our hope. It seems counterintuitive to believe that hardships are meant to increase our hope. But that's what Paul says here in verse 4. Now the word hope here means confidence. We have the confidence, the absolute assurance that God is using this season of suffering in our lives to produce the image of Christ in us. In verse 5, Paul writes, and hope does not put us to shame. In other words, you are not going to get to the end of your life and be ashamed or embarrassed because you completely trusted in God's promises and he let you down. No, that's not going to happen. Because Christ has been raised, we too shall be raised. Paul says, we are not going to, reg- we're not going to regret believing that God will use this time of hardship to accomplish good in our lives. In fact, we see it happening even as we're enduring hardship. We see ourselves changing that we're becoming more like Jesus, that we are more thoughtful, more compassionate, more loving, more patient, that we're wiser, we're purer, we're stronger in our faith. So that's the first reason that we can rejoice in suffering, because God uses it to accomplish his good purposes in our lives. The second reason we can rejoice in suffering is because we know God's motive for allowing hardships is love and not anger. Notice what Paul writes next in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, by the way, this is the first time that Paul talks about the love of God in his letter to the Roman church. The question is, why does he introduce it here? Why does he go to such great lengths to once again write what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross in verses 6 to 11? Well, here's the thing. It's important we understand that suffering does not automatically produce the fruit of the Spirit in our life, the characteristics of Christ in our lives. We've all known Christians who became bitter and angry and walked away from the church as a result of suffering. If you believe that you are suffering because God is angry at you, or he's pouring out his wrath on you because you didn't live the way that he called you to live, then your faith in God is going to begin to crumble. 
And you're going to be overcome with all kinds of emotions like fear and worry and anger. Anger at God for his impossible standards and anger at yourself for failing to live the way that God wants you to. Now, please understand, I know from my own experience of facing life-threatening illness more than once, that when you are enduring great suffering and uncertainty, it's easy to conclude that God doesn't love you, that he's angry with you, or even that he's just forgotten about you. It's tough believing that you're loved when you are hurting. It's hard for us to believe that the one who's allowing us to suffer is allowing that out of genuine love and concern for us. And that's why Paul goes into this long litany here in verses 6 to 11 to remind us that God's motive is love, not anger. Now, to help us to explain these verses 6 to 11, I'm going to give you my paraphrase of these verses. I'm going to ask you just follow along in your Bible, beginning in verse 6. Look, at one time you were an enemy of God. You were sinful and rebellious toward God, ignoring him and defiantly refusing to submit to and worship and follow him. And consequently, God's wrath and justice was directed at you and your sin. Verse 8. But while you were still a sinner, while you were still defiant and rebellious toward God and the object of his wrath, God's love for you was so great that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for you. When you embraced Jesus as your Savior and Lord, the conflict between you and God ended because his justice was satisfied. You are no longer the object of his wrath and hopelessly lost, all because Jesus took God's wrath and paid for your sin on the cross. You are now part of his spiritual family and the object of his love and grace. Verse 10. And so think about it. If God loved you so much to die for you when you were his enemy, how much more will he love and care for you in this life now that you are his child and friend? You know, church, to the degree that we understand, believe, and embrace the truth of this passage that I just tried to paraphrase is the degree to which we'll be able to rejoice in suffering. Whether we are being afflicted by other people or by Satan, or whether God is allowing hardship to come our way in order to grow us spiritually and in our character, we have the absolute assurance that our God is good and that he can be totally trusted. I mean, consider Job. In Job 1, Satan approaches God and says, the only reason that Job is faithfully following you is because you're good to him. If you stop blessing him, he'd curse you and walk away from you. And God essentially responded saying, well, let's see. And God gave Satan permission to mess with Job's life. 
But I want you to notice this. God restricted what Satan could do. He said, you can do this much and no more. And folks, that's instructive to us. If you're worried about Satan's intrusion in your life or other people hurting you, remember this. God is aware of everything. He doesn't miss a thing. And he will not allow anything to come your way that he doesn't give permission to and that he will not use for good. Now, if you think about it, both Job and his wife suffered the same tragic circumstances. Job's wife came to the place where she'd had enough. She did exactly what Satan wanted Job to do and what he wants all of us to do during times of suffering. She said to Job, curse God and die. Not exactly the kind of words you want to hear from your wife. And yet, how did Job respond to the exact same circumstances? He worshiped God and he said, though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. In other words, yet will I trust him. Friends, suffering and hardships will either produce something good and positive in our lives or they will produce anger, bitterness, and despair in our lives. It depends on how we respond to them. And how we respond to them will be totally based on how convinced we are that God's motive for allowing suffering is love and it isn't hate or anger. And God's purpose for hardship and suffering is to accomplish his good purpose for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. I'll close with this. Years ago, in a Peanuts cartoon, Snoopy is on top of the doghouse and he's writing a novel. And he starts out his novel this way. It was a dark and stormy night. Well, Lucy comes along and reads his opening paragraph and says, as only Lucy can, Snoopy, you always start out your novels with, it was a dark and stormy night. Don't you know that all great novels begin with once upon a time? And so in the next frame, we see Snoopy tearing up the sheet of paper from his typewriter and inserting another page into the typewriter and beginning to type this. Once upon a time, it was a dark and stormy night. (laughs) Friend, if you live very long, I guarantee you that you have not seen your last dark and stormy night. I may not be able to tell you with certainty why you have to face or had to face certain storms in your life. And I know for some of you, even some of the explanations I've given in this message seem hollow and empty to you. But as one who has walked through the valley of the shadow of death several times, I can tell you this, whatever the problem, whatever the crisis, you need not face it alone. God's presence is with you He will never leave you, 
or forsake you. Whatever path you go on, you don't have to travel it alone. You can bank on his promises because he's as real as I am standing up here. And he can be totally trusted. You know, often when we're in the middle of the storm, our first response is emotional. And that's pretty normal and natural. But I have found the pathway to true peace is not to respond on the basis of what I feel, but on the basis of what I know. We may not know how it's all going to turn out, but we know the God who will work it out. And friends, one day, we're all going to realize the truth that knowing God is better than knowing the outcome. And so as we face hardships, we have a choice. We can focus on our fear, or we can focus on the one who said, fear not. We can focus on the problem or the problem solver. We can worship him or we can worry. We can wrestle, be upset with and bitter at God, or we can rest in the sovereignty, the character, and the promises of God, knowing that God is good, that God loves us and has your best interest at heart, and that God will work all things together for our ultimate good and his ultimate glory. And as you do, you're going to discover that when all that you have left is God, God is enough. Let's bow our heads. You know, one of the hardships we have faced over the last two years is COVID and all the frustrations and the fallout around it. My question is, what has it produced in us? Have you thought about that? I mean, ask yourself, how have I allowed the Lord to use the hardships, the frustrations, the loss surrounding COVID to accomplish his good purpose in my life? Has my response to COVID drawn me closer to Christ or further away from Christ? Has it made me realize my need for the Lord in a new way? Has it helped me to sift out the unimportant from the important in life? Has it produced a greater measure of his love for others in me? A greater measure of his joy, of his peace, of his patience, of his kindness, his goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in me? If not, then I trust you realize that you've missed the very reason, the good purpose that God allowed COVID to come our way in the first place. And so I think it is so very important. We just take a moment right now. But I hope it won't stop right now, that it will be something we continue to reflect on and talk to God about this week. But for now, let's go to the Lord again 
for a moment and ask, what are you saying to me, Lord? And what do you want me to do about it?